This is the first night in some time where I've neglected to suggest that we keep this room more quiet and meditative. And then also I think from baby blessing, which is such fun, things kind of become more animated. But I think we'll go back to keeping it more meditative in the break for people who wish. And Otherwise, at its extreme, it started to sound more like we were at a big cocktail party or something like that. And that's okay, but... Anyway, thank you. Please let yourself get settled and sit in whatever way is easy and comfortable for this time. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to address this evening, and I put a few things together from current and past things. Um, and I was driving over here, and I thought, I'm a little bit confused. And then I remembered the Dalai Lama teaching recently, and when he was here on his this recent visit. And at one point he was trying to explain some dharma, something or other, and he stopped in the middle and he said, Mmm, I've lost my train of thought. And he tried to get it back and he couldn't. And he laughed and he looked at the translator. And then he looked out and he said, This is confusion. <laughs> <laughs> Just what it is. So we'll see how confused it is tonight. I'm not sure. <laughs> Last week, for those of you who came on Monday night, uh, I told a number of stories from this retreat for activists from the black and Latino communities, people working with street gangs and the AIDS epidemic and homeless people and so forth. Um, and as I reflected further and perhaps as a way to connect with those stories that were so moving uh, that these people had told, um, one of the questions that was there in the center of that retreat and in a certain way in the center of anyone's spiritual practice is how to live in this world, this place that we find ourselves. And you might say we chose it, that's possible, but no matter what, we're here. In this place that we find ourselves in an open way and in a way that expresses the possibility of human freedom that is the birthright of every human being. Because as one comes to meditate, or in many of your cases, to practice now over uh, some period of time, the purpose is not just to calm oneself, although that's good in itself, it's quite salutary to stop all the running around, and just sit and breathe and feel one's own body and heart and mind. But not as a way to remove oneself from life and from the complexities of modern life, but somehow to find in the midst of this very body and heart and mind and the things around us this freedom. That is, the, the word Buddha means awakened one or liberated or freed one how to be free in our own Buddha nature.
And of course, it's not easy, as we know. From Sigmund Freud, he wrote, Life as we find it is too hard for us. It entails too much pain, too many disappointments in impossible tasks. We cannot do without palliative remedies. There are perhaps three of these means, powerful diversions of interest, which lead us to care less about our miseries, substitute gratifications which lessen it, and intoxicating substances which makes us insensitive to it. Something of this kind appears indispensable. Old Freud, that was probably not on his best day. So how do we deal with the difficulties that he addresses on that not-such-a-good-day? I mean, he had other much more, I think, helpful things to say. Um, I read in the paper a couple years ago an article that the Transcendental Meditation Community, um, who've done many, many fine things in the world, um, made an offer to the San Diego City Council um, that for, I believe it was $18 million, they would bring 10,000 meditators to the city of San Diego to all meditate simultaneously and to help um, generate a field which would drop the crime rate and the violence of San Diego guaranteed by at least one-third and maybe half in a period of months and would save them a great deal of money, actually, that the $18 million was much less than the fire and the police and all those things. Um, um, But somehow the San Diego Chamber of Commerce and the Board of Supervisors and so forth didn't uh, take them up on it, so we'll never know. The way of practice that we're doing here is not quite so literal as that. And the focus is not so much about changing the world, although I believe the world does change from our being. But it's rather focused on a prior step, which is finding a wisdom in the midst of this changing world. Here we are in this human realm. And the human realm is pretty easy to recognize uh, as the realm, it's called in the Taoist tradition, the realm of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It's kind of balanced in that respect. Certainly the sorrows are evident, the worldwide difficulties, conflict, suffering, but together with them is beauty and exquisite things. Um, Beside all the wars that we know and all all the grave injustice, At the same time, there's a genuine possibility of peace and goodwill in the midst of it all. In fact, every day, in Marin County alone, there are hundreds of thousands of spontaneous acts of generosity. Or in the whole Bay Area, there are. Every time you stop at a traffic light and let somebody else pass, it's really an act of respect. I mean, it's true, it's self-preservation as well. But there's a certain respect to it, especially if no one else is there. You know, you could do it. You could go through it. And every time you get in line at the supermarket and don't kind of get in front of somebody else or say thank you as you receive something, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of moments of spontaneous and unnamed acts of generosity that make the fabric of our lives work. And it's beautiful. There's something kind of developmental about what I want to speak of tonight. 
And that is when a child is young and they look at their parents, they tend to see their parents at certain moments as all good, if they give them what they want, and all bad if they don't. If they say, no, you can't have it, they throw a tantrum and I hate you, mommy or daddy or whatever. Remember that face? Right? I know some of you are still in it, but that's all right. (laughs) But as developmentally, as children get older and presumably wiser, there comes a certain moment when they're able to see that their parent is not just terrible or beautiful, but that they contain both those qualities within one person. There's similarly a spiritual evolution, because people tend to look for spiritual teachers that are all ideal and perfect for a while, too, in that same way. And then after a while, it kind of dawns on them, through some practice and experience, one would hope, that um, teachers, too, are human beings like everybody else. The Dalai Lama is one of the first, and one of his beautiful qualities is kind of to admit his foibles as well as his his, uh, um, good qualities. So here we are, we come to meditate, and as we sit, all this stuff comes. The sorrows we carry, the griefs and hopes, the images that we hold of the struggles of other people in the world or our own, and the beauty, the joy, the creativity, the love that we feel, the potential within us. I remember uh, the Tibetan Lama and leader, His Holiness Karmapa, who... um, in many ways, um, was like a great big baby. And he would laugh all the time and play with people. And, um, you know, he kept animals. It's like in his palace in Sikkim, it was almost like he had a zoo there as well. And he played with them. And he just, he, he, he moved through the world with this tremendous innocence and joy. And then periodically he would do formal teachings, including the very famous ceremony that he did to where he wore the black crown that was given to him 11 incarnations before or something like that by the emperor of China. Um, and when he would put this on and open a box and take out this crystal rosary and sit in a very formal way with monks chanting and so forth, it was said that he became the Buddha of infinite compassion, Avalokiteshvara, at that time, do this very deep, profound chanting. And as he did, his whole face would change and he would begin to weep. And you would see in his face, in his eyes, the sorrow that matched and touched every other being's sorrow in this world. The unthinkable sorrows of so many beings today on the earth. And he would chant compassion and you would feel it so deeply. And then when it was over, take the crown off, put the crystal ball away, stop the chanting, come back, and then a little while later would be this big baby again, you know, this joyful person. Somehow he held them both. Now a first thing that's essential is that for a genuine spiritual life, we can't avoid one side or the other. This is the Buddha's first noble truth, the part of suffering, and the third noble truth, the part of freedom and beauty or joy. All you have to do is read your mail if it's like mine, you know, and you get the letters from Greenpeace that talk about the environmental disasters and then the letters from Amnesty International, people in prisons around the world, and then the letters from Oxfam that talk about everyone who's um, hungry in different continents and countries and so forth, and the difficulties in Burundi and Cambodia and Afghanistan and the war crimes and the racism and the disappearance of cultures 
of all these amazing and beautiful cultures. Men and women are free to choose anything in modern society except to opt out. The ultimate treason is to prefer to neither produce nor consume wealth. Cultures that do not believe in modern consumer economics and the sale of goods must be developed out of existence. Roads, schools, and hospitals are the preferred weapons of destruction. So there's some way, and especially if you've traveled, whether it's in Latin America, Africa, or Asia, places you start to see cultures disappearing and everything becomes more like we know it on television. So there are all these things that are true, and they're true personally as well. Our own difficulties, the people we know, illnesses, loss, loneliness, divorce, fear, betrayal, confusion. And they're part of human life. They really are. I mean, if I were to ask, how many of you are involved at this time in some significant process of loss? Raise your hands. See, maybe a quarter of the room. How many of you are in the midst of some difficult situation in your life? Raise your hands. Not the same people, another quarter. Next month it will be a different quarter, right? That's how it works. I could ask how many of you are involved in some wonderful new project or something new that's being born in your life. Raise your hands. We switch off. (laughs) So how are we to touch this and hold this? There is the contradiction, because for all the difficulties, there is the birth of new seeds and new children. And there was this beautiful baby blessing, and I have two friends, uh, two different couples who took some years to try to get pregnant, and they're both pregnant, and they're excited, and they're going to have their children, and they're so happy. Um, I went to a wedding yesterday, and it was a beautiful wedding, and it was a, a celebration of the union of life again, of people saying, yes, we will come together in this community, and we will live in this this." Uh, in the spirit of love. It was such an affirmation. And here we have these long summer evenings with the beautiful light of the summer. And those of you who have gardens like I do, they're getting filled with vegetables, or more squash than you can eat, you know. And flowers and fruits and the plum trees are filled with plums. You know, and I drove into Spirit Rock yesterday morning and there were these two large wild turkeys and then there were 17 little baby turkeys all running after them across the meadow that way, you know. And we had family day yesterday with lots of kids, preschool and kindergarten kids, and every single one of them seemed to be bursting with exuberance and drawing and painting and running around and it was like life was just... uh, flooding the world with, its, um, with itself, with its creativity and its abundance. And here we go off to Mars looking to see if we can find one little sign of an old bacteria, right? <laughs> and one scoop of earthly soil is filled with millions of life forms, millions of them all making more. Actually, when I was 
just recently in New Mexico for the retreat I spoke of last week, I was riding in a van from uh, Taos back to uh, get the, air, air, the airport, or actually back to uh, Albuquerque, and it was um, the day before the big gathering in Roswell, New Mexico for the 50th UFO anniversary. <laughs> And one of the people, it was people started talking about it because one of the people got in there said, yep, she was going to get in a plane, fly from Albuquerque back to Roswell. And so the driver said, well, are you going to be part of the thing, the events and so forth? This was an older woman, Maybell, I think her name was. She said, yeah, I'll probably go see what they're doing. She said, I remember I was there in 47, said when that thing landed. <laughs> so they said, did you see it? She said, no, I didn't see it. I had a friend who was working over at the funeral parlor who told me it was mighty strange because they came over, they wanted three or four of them little coffins to put something in. I don't know what it was, but I never got to see it myself. But I have friends who did. You know, I'm just sitting on the bus listening. <laughs> Thank you, Maybell. Who knows, you know? Who knows? But Aviation Week magazine, which is kind of the most conservative journal of that uh, aviation had an article last year or whatever about all these sightings of things on radar and track that had some as yet unknown propulsion system driving them. That was all it said. didn't explain what they were. I have no idea. But here we are. We're in this, on this planet, going around the sun and in these bodies. How do we awaken to this? What do we do? How do we keep our heart open? One vision as a way to hold the contradictions, the sorrows and the beauty, is that it's a dream. Maya is the illusion, the word for illusion in the Indian tradition. So the Diamond Sutra said, This whole fleeting world, thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, it's about to dissolve, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. It appears for a time and it vanishes. Every day disappears and it's gone. And a new day comes. It appears out of nowhere and disappears. And then we're making mirrors of it in cyberspace. You know, not only is is there a reality which disappears at the end of a day, but now there's virtual reality. I actually was reading about the virtual Wailing Wall project because in the Jewish tradition it said that if you go to the last, the old temple wall from the temple of, the, of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, that one wall that's left, and you make a prayer and put it on a piece of paper and stick it between the stones, it goes directly to heaven. Well, now there's the virtual Wailing Wall project and you can email or fax your prayers <laughs> there to Jerusalem. But it's sort of, it's kind of, um, um, it's, it's where realities collide a little bit because then they take the email or the fax off and they write it on a piece of paper for you and stick it in the wall. They haven't yet put the computer right into the stone. That, I think, is the next step. So we are, we're making all this stuff. And so there's this one sense is that, okay, it's a dance that we're a part of. And I remember talking to Ramdas sometime recently and he was talking about how the whole time he was in the hospital in the emergency room and then 
you know, in the intensive care and so forth. Everything dropped away. He said he could almost hardly remember it. His home, his partner, you know, the Seva Foundation, all the work he'd done, playing golf. He said it all it was like a dream. It had happened and it was all gone. Um, and um, I told him I'd, I'd wanted to come visit him. I visited him in the hospital and brought him a picture of Ramana Maharshi, who's that wonderful sage from India who didn't speak much. It was mostly silent. And I thought it was a good image for Ramdas to have as a, uh, you know, a reminder that there are different ways to be and teach. So when I talked to him recently, I was going to come visit him. He said, well, he, he still pauses a lot searching for words. He said, I have a, a picture I want to, I want to give you of my, of my guru, because you gave me a picture of Ramana. He said, and then he laughed a little bit, and he said, it's like baseball cards. <laughs> I'll give you one Neem Karoli Baba for two Ramana Maharshis and a Mickey Mantle. You are eight years old. It is Sunday evening. You've been granted an extra hour before bed. The family is playing Monopoly. You've been told that you're big enough to join them. You lose. You are losing continuously. Your stomach cramps with fear. Nearly all your possessions are gone. The money pile in front of you is almost gone. Your brothers are snatching all the houses from your streets. The last street is being sold. You have to give in. You have lost. And suddenly, you know that it is only a game. You jump up with joy and you accidentally knock the board over. (laughs) Yes, it falls on the floor and you laugh as you go upstairs. For you've seen the joy of being nothing and having nothing. And what you have seen gives you an immeasurable freedom and joy. So this is one side of it. It is this dance, and it disappears. An illusion it may be, and yet, the famous story of Milarepa's teacher, Marpa, who spoke of illusion. And then when his grandson died, he wept and wept. And his students said, I thought you said this was all an illusion. And he said, yes, and the greatest and most difficult of all of these illusions is the loss of a child. So maybe it's not just a dream and a fleeting dance. For in fact, the visionaries and the wise women and wise men of old see what we can see as we sit. It's not just then, Marpa's time, but it's here. That as we see that it doesn't last, that it's so tentative, it makes it all the more mysterious and beautiful and precious. Somehow it's sacred because there is only one of you ever in all time and only this day in the summer once. So the other side of that sense of illusion is how amazing it is that it exists and how precious and respectful we might treat it. It's like the master who was with the 
student in the Zen garden, and the student said, Master, finally, please tell me about enlightenment. And the master said, see that great bamboo over there, how tall it is? And the student said, yes. And see that small one over there, how short it is? And the student said, yes. And the master said, so, that's it. <laughs> do you understand? Some do and some don't, huh? It's called the suchness of things. Things are the way they are for a moment. That one's tall and that one's short, and it's not supposed to be any other way. That day, beneath dark clouds, I heard the voice of the world speak out, Life is no passing memory of what has been, nor the remaining pages in a great book waiting to be read. It is the opening of eyes long closed. It is the vision of far-off things seen for the silence they hold. It is the heart after years of secret conversing, speaking out loud in the clear air. It is Moses in the desert, fallen to his knees before the flaming bush. It is any man or woman throwing away their shoes as if to enter heaven and finding themselves astonished, opened at last, fallen in love with solid ground. The miracle or the mystery is what is here, and that it's here at all, that we are here. So one might ask then, what advice would you give to your beloved sons or daughters born on this earth, your nieces and nephews? How do you live? Hold life. The Buddha gave some advice, as you might give. He said to my brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, the heirs to the Dharma, those of you who awaken to your own true nature, and he taught several things. First, he taught that to awaken is to embrace and honor all that is. It's not to go someplace else or look for some other place, but to embrace the contradictions of this life that we've been given. Because every birth entails a death. There is gain and loss, and each gain involves a loss. And each step east is also a step west, isn't it? In the great circle of things. And when you give birth to a child, there are the labor pains and the danger. It was very dangerous for most of human life until recently. Very dangerous even to give birth to a child. And yet with it comes this tremendous beauty, this new being and joy. So that things come together in this paradoxical way. I like it, Carl Jung writes about eros, which I've always been interested in, passion and eros and life. He said it's always questionable, isn't it? And it always will be, no matter what the laws say about it or your religion. For it belongs, the erotic, on one hand to the original animal nature of humans, which will exist as long as we have a body. But on the other hand, it connects us with the highest form of the spirit. But it blooms only when the spirit and instinct 
are in true harmony. For if one or other aspect is missing, an injury occurs. Too much of the animal disfigures the civilized human being, but too much culture makes for a sick animal. You understand? Here we are, this dilemma. So the Buddha in some way bowed to it. Sun Buddha, Moon Buddha, Happy Buddha, Sad Buddha. This is our human life. And said, in the midst of this, not some other place, but here and now is the freedom that we might seek, is that possibility of awakening. What's required is what we train in the meditation as we come here together. First, the simplicity of our attention, just to know what is, to be present for it. As Woody Allen said, 80% of life is just showing up, right? It's that simple. It's just being here and saying, well, this is how it is at this moment. But with this, also the need to touch and respect the sorrows of the world, not to run away from them. There's a book that was written, oh, I think about 15 years ago, by Barbara Meyerhoff called Number Our Days. She was an anthropologist who went into some of the old age homes outside of Los Angeles to interview these people who had lived, grown up in the ghettos in Eastern Europe and then come at the turn of the century and made their lives in America. And then they'd somehow come together at the end of their lives and made a little ghetto again back in the old age homes. It's a wonderful book. And this is a dialogue between Moishe and Heschel talking about how you survive in this world. You're pretty old, Moishe. Don't you have anything to say? Did you learn anything? And he says, yeah, but why should I talk? I would only waste my time. And Heschel says, time you got, Moishe. What else? You might as well speak. So he says, all right, I'll tell you how I survive, but you won't like it. Every time I say it, people shudder, but you can't get away from it, the thing I'm talking about. The word is pain. Pain is the avenue to getting a soul, getting quality from your life. This is how you get a life that's really in the essence. You go about pain the right way. You couldn't escape it, so you go into it. Then it melts. You get from this the whole thing, the idea of life itself, and the result is you're able to take pain in and ignore it because you're so full of living. And when you learn to do this, and believe me, it took me a lot of years to learn it, you get a clarification, I would say. Now, if you want to hear a little more, I could give you an example. When I start to talk about pain, it leaves me. That's why I don't like to talk about it so much. All that I got to say is painful, and when I tell somebody about it, then I feel better. But that's no good. It comes back to you when you're not looking. Whoosh! It jumps out from behind the stove and it grabs you. You thought you got rid of it. So instead, I bear it. Wait, even overnight. I mean, I bear it. I don't take a tranquilizer, no schnapps, no watching television. I stand before it. I call the pain out. And after you go through this, then, only then, you discover you've got choices. You become whole. This is the task of life. I want to live this kind of life so I can be alive every minute. I want to know when I'm awake, I'm awake, and when I'm asleep, I'm asleep. Gee, it sounds a little masochistic to me, says Heschel. Moishe says, it's not. 
in this way, you make suffering, even your suffering, something positive. It's part of human life. Dostoevsky wrote about that. He said, I want to be worthy of my sufferings. And believe me, he suffered, and so have I. So it's not turning away, but it's really this capacity for presence. And what's important in this presence, then, is not so much what arises, but whether we can hold it in our attention and our heart with compassion. I read you another story. This is from Richard Seltzer, a surgeon at Yale Medical School. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut this little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily, the young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods, is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It is kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I so close I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. And I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. So there is somehow asked of us if we would live a noble life, live the life of our own true nature. What's asked of us is this capacity to be present, to open to it, to listen with our hearts, our bodies, our minds, to listen with our whole being, and to accept somehow the limitations of human life as well as its beauty to accept our own limitations as well as our own beauty. And maybe they're even the same. Can I tell you one more story? A store owner tacked a sign in the window, puppies for sale, you know how it is. Of course, the first children that came by were immediately attracted. One little boy came in, said, uh, how much are the puppies? said, well, they're going to be about $30. And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out like $4. And he said, could I please look at them? So the owner uh, 
smiled and whistled, and out of the kennel came the mom, right, with like five little fur balls following after her. But one puppy lagged considerably behind, and immediately the boy singled out this puppy, limping, said, what's wrong with that little dog? The store owner had to explain that when the puppy was born, the veterinarian looked at it and discovered that it, its hip socket was not formed right, and said it would always limp. And the little boy got very excited. Oh, that's the puppy I want to buy. The store owner said, Oh, you don't want to buy that puppy. I would give it to him. It's not for sale. If you really want him, I'll just give him to you. And the boy got very upset and looked straight in the eye of the store owner, pointed his finger and said, I don't want you to give him to me. That little dog is worth every bit as much as every other puppy and I'll pay the full price. I'll give you four dollars now and however much you need a week until I can buy him. But the store owner said, you know, you're not really, you don't want to buy this puppy. And he's a sweet little puppy, but he's never going to be able to run like the others and play with you. And the little boy looked back at him and reached down and rolled up his pants legs and showed this metal brace on his leg where it was crippled. And he looked at, back at the owner and said, well, I don't run so well myself, you know. And the little puppy would probably need somebody who understands like I do. In some way, we're all like that. There isn't a person in this room that isn't extraordinarily beautiful and also broken in some way. I mean, it's just what it is on this earth. So to awaken means a, a heart that can open to that in the person next to us, in the persons that we live with, and probably most difficultly of all, in ourselves. An attention that's honest, a willingness to stay with what's difficult as well as what's easy, a compassion of the heart, a listening not with our ears or our mind but with our whole being to get and sense and open. And through that somehow there comes, it's like a doorway through that attention, a gate to take us to this mystery that's always here, because really, who is next to you? Who are these people around you? Who are we? What is our true nature? How did we get here? Nobody could really say, could you? You'd say one thing, but it wouldn't be enough or it would be too much. And when we forget, we live in what's called the body of fear, this small sense of self. And we get entangled and possessive and jealous and attached and frightened and petty. And those things come that come to all of us. They're not even bad. They're just forgetfulness. But then in a moment, in just a moment, any moment, when we're really present, it can all change and we say, wow, are you in there? How'd you get in there? And you, you know, and you, how did this happen? Here we are in this human life together. And it's as if we can bow to one another. You know, a friend of mine, 
who is taught for many years in the prisons, na- is named Bo Lozoff. He's actually come and done a Monday night class here, I think, last year. And one of his books is called uh, We're All Doing Time. And he spent, I think, 20 years going to prisons and bringing meditation teachings and spiritual practices so that the people inside could understand that the question of freedom was the same for them as anybody else. That it's really the freedom in here. But he told a story of how he first began to teach. He also was inspired by Ram Dass and the Hanuman Foundation and started the Prison Ashram Project. They did their first book, I think it was Inside Out, sending letters and meditation instructions. He was kind of new at it. And he said one day um, he went down to South Carolina to visit some people he'd been corresponding with in the state prison there. He went into the South Carolina State Prison and an older black man came up to him who'd been waiting. He said, oh, I've got your letters and they've been so helpful and I made a little altar in my cell and I've been learning to meditate and doing yoga and I've really changed my time. I'm doing it all differently and I'm so inspired and I've just been waiting to meet you because you are my teacher. I've learned so much from you and my teacher has come. And as he said, you are my teacher, Bo said he could feel himself getting smaller and backing away. You know, I'm not anybody's teacher. He said, I just, you know, I got these from, from uh, the books on yoga or from my teachers and I just pass it along to you. I'm not a teacher, I'm just a friend I'm trying to give you the things that have helped me. And he said, no man, you're my teacher. And, you know, I got your picture and I got your letters. And Bo said, no, you know, this is, I'm just, we're spiritual friends. And he said he went home after that, and that night he didn't sleep very well, thinking about this encounter. And when he got up the next day, he realized he had blown it, because it really was important to that man, and he was somehow denying that. And he reflected about it, and he stopped going into prisons for a year. He said, I didn't want to go back into the prison until I felt like it would be okay if I could be anything that was needed for that person. Do you understand that? And in some way, that's what we're all called upon to do. It's not just the suffering that you carry, but the beauty that you carry. To be present in this way is to allow what you know to be true, to shine in your life to let yourself be seen for what you are and to offer it with your blessings and your mercy and your understanding and your forgiveness to yourself and to the people around you. You may not know what to do in this life, so do good. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. People favor underdogs, but tend to follow only the top dogs. Fight for the underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have, 
and you may end up with nothing. It's good for your heart, so give the world the best you have anyway. In this very simple practice of presence, attention, mindfulness, sacred attention it's called, is respect and compassion and the gateway to that which is greater, which is timeless, which is mysterious. This week I was reading The Sun magazine. I don't know if I have it here somewhere. But there was a wonderful article in it. Yeah, here it is. By a, by a man interviewed, a man named Cleve Baxter, who's the scientist on whose work the books years ago. Remember that book, The Secret Life of Plants? Some of you may see, and other such things were, was written. It was on his work. He was a kind of biophysicist who invented some kinds of lie detectors and things. And then by accident, he stuck it in the yogurt one morning, you know. And then he all of a sudden, something, he got a terrible phone call, and the yogurt reacted on his little polygraph. <laughs> and he realized that things were living beside his own mind. Um, and he hooked it up to this plant, you know. Um, probably you know the story, he said, and uh, at 13 minutes, 55 seconds, chart time, the thought entered my mind that maybe I would burn the leaf of the plant to see what would happen. I didn't even say it out loud. I didn't touch the equipment or the plant, but the needle went wild. (laughs) And then when I said, no, no, I'm not really going to do it, the plant calmed down. (laughs) So his latest experiments have been taking cells, doing scrapings from the inside of people's mouths and culturing them so he has cells of people. Um, And then they go off and they keep a diary, and when particularly... um, intense things happen to them. They register what time it is, and then he compares it to the, the tape that shows what's happening in that cell um, on his little polygraph. Um, and he said, people, he said, he's got the distance now two or three states away, you know, not even in the local vicinity, and somebody can have some, some powerful thing happen to them, you know, in the little culture thing, it starts to wiggle all around like, whoops, something's happening to us, even though it's way over there. And he said, people have been able to replicate these experiments, but they find it so hard to believe that nothing much happens with it. And he just laughs. He said, they'll see, you know. So we come together and we do this simple practice of paying attention, this ancient art of listening with respect, and compassion and opening. And in it, everything that we've ever longed for can be found and the mystery of life can be touched because it's always here in this moment. And the great compassion of the Buddha that is there in us awakens in a moment. (coughs) It's not far away. It's nearer than near. From the Tao. Do you want to improve the world? I don't think it can be done. The world is sacred. It can't be improved. If you tamper with it, you'll ruin it. If you treat it like an object, you'll lose it. There is a time for being ahead and a time for being behind, a time for being in motion and a time for being at rest a time for being vigorous, and a time for being exhausted, a time for being safe, 
and a time for being in danger. The master sees the seasons of things, sees things as they are without trying to control them. She lets them go their own way and resides at the center of the circle. So let's sit for a moment in that center. In a world that's as busy as most of our lives are, it's a beautiful thing just to sit still for a time and to listen. 
As a way to end this evening, in a moment, I'd like us to do a chant um, for a time. And I was given the names of a couple of people in particular to put into the meditation as we chant. One is Miriam Schubach, who died on Saturday. And one is Joey Vasquez, who is dying, a child dying of lymphoma. Um, but there may be many other names and people. Somehow when we sit in this room, I feel like it's us and that we bring hundreds of other people with us that are in this room too. In that sense, what we do is never for ourselves alone. That's really a greater act. So I'd like us to do this simple chant of respect. The word in India when one greets someone is namaste, which means I honor that divine which is within you that which is sacred in you. And the Sanskrit word from which that derives is namo, namaste, namo. Namo means I bow to, I pay respects. So what I'd like us to do is to chant namo for a little while. And as you do, as we chant together, you can send your blessings, to Miriam and Joey and anyone else in the world or any place else in the world. The intentions of your heart that they may be well, that they may awaken, that they may be held in great loving kindness and safety. It's often done in some retreats in Asia that every time you meditate, just when you end the sitting, you do a little practice of sharing consciously whatever benefits have come. May this moment of peacefulness or this moment of remembering kindness, may it spread out through the world and benefit every other being. So it's kind of like that. So we'll chant for a bit and let you do your own blessings. Na mo na Oh.
So may your week be filled with moments of presence and compassion and embracing of all of life. Next week I'll be up with my, my mother and my brothers and their wives and their kids, a whole family thing in the Sierras. And uh, the person to do Monday night class is a dear friend of mine, um, Lama Paulden, who is an American woman. Her, also her name is Caroline Alioto. Um, she's a, a, a wonderful Tibetan Lama, an American person who is trained as a Tibetan Lama, who lives in Marin. So she's going to come and give some kind of teachings. I don't know what. You'll have to find out. So drive carefully. Thank you for your support of Spirit Rock and your help. And um, enjoy the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.